Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So just before we get started, um, we've got a bit, a bit of news. We went along to the Mind Media Awards the other night, didn't we, Ellen? We did. Got it was all great. dressed up and everything. And we went along with Francis Coleman-Williams, who's one of our bloggers, and Hattie Gladwell, who's one of our other lifestyle writers. She does loads on mental health. Um, so both brilliant and as well with our editor, Deborah Arthurs. Um, we were up for the Publications Awards, um, we didn't win it, but sadly, can, sadly, but the winner was very deserving yes. and very niche as well. So like, there's no way we could have, it, we couldn't have compared, we competed no. with, the win- with the winner. Exactly. It was very specific and a really brilliant, interesting article. Yeah. So, so um, it was construction news that won the publication um, award. And yeah, it was really interesting actually, because I don't think we realized, but um, the construction industry has the highest rates of suicide. So um, I think it's really great that they came up with the campaign that they did. Yeah. And it was a great night in general, like just hearing other people talking about mental health so openly and seeing all these people that are doing really brilliant work. Mm. It was just great. And it was really cool just to be considered in the same like category as all those people. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there were some other really great um, people in the category. So men's health. Um, I'm going to forget the other ones. but Guardian was in it. Yeah, really the garden um, and a couple of others as well. It was just really a lovely night. And also um, Stephen Fry was there, who's like yeah. one of my personal heroes. Um, so that was really lovely because he's just fantastic, I think. And um, Prince Harry. Um, who else? I'm going to embarrass myself. Fern Cotton? Fern Cotton. Yeah, oh well. my God, her dress was fantastic. It was like a jumpsuit. It, it was, was great. Oh no, it was a jumpsuit. Yeah, oh, full on but it was beautiful. Jumpsuit. Yeah. But yeah, I know I'm determined. If we don't get invited next year, I'll be very sad. I yeah. know, never want to skip that event. It was amazing. Yeah. And just being in that room with everyone was such, just such a nice, positive vibe. Yeah. Just being like, everyone here has mental health issues and we're all open to talking about it and we're all working to like break down this stigma. Like that's, mm. how often do you get to be in that kind of room? It's yeah. amazing. It's mentally yours from Ellen and Yvette. 
Focus on your mental health, you surely won't regret It's mentally, 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 mentally yours Mentally yours Mentally yours Oh hey! It's Ellen, and I'm here with the vet, and this is Mentally Yours, Metro.co.uk's weekly podcast on mental health. So, this week we'll be chatting to Julia Samuel, MBE, about grief. She's a bit of an expert on the subject. She has a book called Grief Works, Stories of Life, Death and Surviving, and she'll be chatting to us about that. But before that, let's have a listen to last week. I'd gone on holiday with my parents to Canada and America, and I was just sitting in by a lake one day and suddenly I thought what if I murdered someone and buried them in the back garden and then I said that well I thought about it for a day or something before I said to my mum and dad oh, I'm worried I've murdered someone and buried them in the back garden and um, it sounds funny but obviously it isn't because you're terrified at the time so that was us last week and now we're going to talk about the super fun topic of death and grief and bereavements it's an awkward subject we don't normally talk about it in our everyday lives it's important so let's hear from Julia I think the main thing is to acknowledge it that you don't have to fix somebody but just be kind I think the main thing is is kindness you know to say I'm sorry not to turn away often people say bring food Um, But I think it's mainly uh, be present. And, you know, if you're not a very close friend, you don't have to be very present. But I think what people find difficult is where people don't know what to say, so they don't say anything at all. And then there's, there, there is this sort of big elephant in the room that is never discussed or voiced. And then people, people feel lonely when they're grieving anyway. You know, they have this enormous sense of absence of the person that they love that's inside them. And then no one talks about that person or knows how to voice it or say anything at all. So that absence feels even greater. You know, the biggest single thing that helps us when we're grieving is the connection to others. When we lose love, love of others is what helps us. So it's just loving kindness. I think we have a kind of magical thinking is that if I think or talk about death, I'm going to somehow make it happen. And if I pretend it isn't going to happen, it may happen to other people in horrible, bad ways, but it's not going to happen to me. And, you know, one of the things I really want to get us to think about and talk about is that we, we really do know that we're all going to die. However brilliant medicine is, we are mortal. And the more we talk about it, within us, you know, within our families, within our, the closest people to us, then the less opportunity there is for regrets because it's the things we haven't said that we haven't asked that do us harm. What sort of work do you do in terms of helping people with that? So I'm a psychotherapist and I worked in a hospital for 25 years um, at St Mary's working with families when a child or a baby that died. So I think the main thing is giving them a place that is a kind of place where they can allow themselves to feel their pain that they don't have to pretend or be okay for me, that I can sit beside them. Because how we heal in grief is by allowing ourselves to feel the pain. And often it's the things we do to avoid the pain, to block the pain, that do us harm. And that often happens in families for generations. You know, drinking, busyness, all those avoidance things, then it does come and kind of bite you in the bum afterwards. 
you think there's a noticeable, noticeable difference in the way that men and women deal with grief? Yes, I mean, that's a really good question. I mean, I think it is changing within the generations. But what research shows is that men tend to want to get on and tend to want to be okay and kind of fix things. So when I saw men, often they wanted to have another baby or go back to work. And women tend to be preoccupied to ruminate, to go over and over it and want to know every kind of piece of the puzzle. And there's a couple that can cause real problems because he thinks she's a kind of wet rag who never stops crying and she thinks he's a selfish bastard who just wants another child, you know, or, or to be okay. And so I talk to them that if they can help each other do a bit of the other, that kind of rebalances it. And actually, because he's not showing his pain doesn't mean he's not feeling it. They feel it every bit as much as women. You know, grief is hidden. How can couples help each other with that and come to deal with the different approaches to grief? I think there are practical things that you can do. So I think you know, not sitting and sobbing with each other. I don't think that particularly helps because I think men feel very disempowered by that. I think walking and talking really helps, like getting out in the air, you know, and crying in the air, you kind of feel a bit released. And then you go and do something comforting, like have a cup of coffee or, you know, go to your favorite place. But I, th I think the main thing is allowing each other to be who they are, knowing that they're being normal, want not wanting them to be different the woman getting the man to speak occasionally about it, maybe do something together that helps them remember the person that's died. So it, it may be cooking his favorite recipe together or playing music. So it doesn't have to be kind of doom and gloom. And he can help her do something, you know, positive, like go for a run together or sit in the garden or um, do more positive things that help lift her spirits. What sort of effect do you think that um, Prince Harry being so open recently about his own grief has had on the nation? Well, both of them were the Duke of Cambridge and um, Prince Harry were both very open. And I think, they, I think they've given particularly young people and particularly young men permission that feelings doesn't mean that you're wet and weak, that you can, you know, they're very clearly... Um, uh, you know, a, a, you know, highly kind of brave and can, I can't find the words. Um, they're both clearly uh, sort of healthy young men and yet they, they could express themselves. So I think that's a great role model. I think it helped turn the dial. I mean, I think the Heads Together campaign is a fantastic campaign. And I'm incredibly pleased that it's taken off in the way that it has. How long can grief sort of affect you for if you don't sort of deal with it? I mean, it's very individual. Um, a new loss will always bring back previous losses. So if you're somebody that's had a lot of losses, it has a much greater effect. I think one of the things that we know is that you don't get over grief. It isn't something that has closure, that, but you find a way of adapting and accommodating to it. So you find a way of living again, loving again, and engaging with life. And it can still come and get you. I think what the research shows that men um, who haven't done any, found any way of expressing their grief, have more mental illness and they have more physical illness. In the first six months after the death of someone very close to you, you're more likely to die of a heart attack. Um, I don't know if that's because they haven't expressed it, but your, your immune system doesn't work so well. So your whole system gets affected by it. Um, so we, we need to find ways of supporting ourselves. Mm. What are the most common mental illnesses that are triggered by grief? What we know is that 15% of all psychological disorders come from unresolved grief. What I don't know is whether it's 
depression or schizophrenia or but I mean I imagine most likely it's depression. If it's your first loss what approach should you be taking to deal with grief because I think for a lot of people they don't really know what's healthy what's the best way to approach it what would be your guide to kind of your first loss? My guide would be that um, grief hurts so this isn't something that they can fix or make it go away so they're not going mad help get people to help them kind of work out together what helps them so that they have times where they have a break from it and go out and do stuff and times where they can remember and be sad but they don't have control of it grief comes and hits you like a like the weather like a storm so it's allowing it to come through your body and supporting yourself to manage that and that rather than trying to do anything to block it particularly as 21st century kind of beings we're so used to having control you know we can go on our iPhone and book a ticket to Australia we can order our food we can do so much so fast and the thing about grief is that it it takes long you know our psychological feelings take much longer to catch up with events than our thinking so we we need to give ourselves permission to let them have their own process rather than think that we have control we always want control and this is something that we don't have control over you didn't have control over the fact that the person you love died and you don't really have control how you feel but you can make it worse or better depending how you respond to yourself how much truth is there to the kind of the classic stages of grief that everyone sort of always hears about and kind of gets almost made fun of in in comedies I mean, I think there's truth that you do have those feelings of anger and denial and bargaining and all those things. The expectation that you go through this door and then you go through that door is very unhelpful. I think it's much more a moving between feeling pain and having a break from the pain and that it's a kind of reiterative process that oscillates through our system and each unique person will bring their own history and their kind of coping mechanism. So... You know, I was brought up to be someone that not to show very much. So my natural response when things are difficult is to shut down. So that will happen whether I want it to or not. And then it takes me time to kind of let myself process. And everybody will have their own particular way. There'll be family cultures of how you cope with grief. What was your own um, personal drive for wanting to learn about this and educate people in it in the first place? I think it comes from two things. One was that both my parents, my mum and my dad, had my mum by the time she was 25, her mother, her father and her sister and her brother were all dead. And my father, his father and um, brother. And they never talked about them. So these black and white photographs around the house that were never discussed. So I think there was this kind of pall of grief that was never expressed and I think that, as a therapist I would think this, other people might poo-poo it but I think that had an effect on me and gave me a kind of curiosity to want to know that what isn't being said, what isn't being voiced it really felt like there was so much that was unsaid and the other thing is I like connection. How can we teach children about death? I think by being honest to them or with them. So we try and in the kind of very good intention of wanting to protect children from suffering, we don't talk to them. But actually, children can manage the truth 
and what they don't know they make up and what they make up is much more frightening than the truth so if someone's say given a fatal diagnosis the children will know immediately in the house there'll be tears there'll be more people there'll be half heard telephone conversations and then they ask what's wrong and everyone tells them nothing's wrong everything's fine that's much more disturbing than telling them that their dad's very ill, they're doing everything they can to make their dad better. And in the same way, you know, that we need to talk about death and not use, you know, gone to a better place or passed away because, you know, or lost, because they lose things every day, but they get them back. They need to know that this person has died. They may look like they're asleep, but actually their body doesn't work anymore. I think in a lot of cases, people think the first pet death kind of prepare them. Do you think there's a danger when we say stuff like, you know, they've gone to a farm or they've gone to a shelter or something like that? Can that cause issue with how children view death later on? Yes, I think we, I think we need, we, it's a two-step process. I think you need to say that they've died and that means that they're never going to breathe or, or come alive again. And then you can say your belief system, so that they're a star in heaven or they've gone to a farm. But if you skip the death thing, then they think they'll come back or they can go and find them in a farm. You know, so that's confusing. Definitely. You mentioned the way that your own family sort of shut out death. Have you noticed- And that was a generational thing mm-hmm. because of the wars. I mean, they, mine weren't particularly weirder than anybody else. It was, a, it was how the whole country um, dealt with loss. Through your own practice, have you noticed any other sort of um, recognisable sort of ways that different families deal with death? Yes, I mean, I think every family has its own particular culture that influences um, how they talk together as a family system, where they have an open communication, where they talk openly amongst each other, or very close communication, how they deal with difficulty. Um, and you know, it'll be affected by their religion, their education, their previous losses. So it, there's a very sort of unique culture within each family. And then there'll be ones that we recognize um, you know, as more universal. Is there a way we have to deal with grief differently if the person who has died we didn't have a good relationship with? I think the assumption might be that you'd be relieved that they were dead, that they couldn't hurt you anymore. And so if it was a parent in particular or a sibling, that you'd think it was kind of over. But the awful thing is that when they've died, the opportunities to kind of um, fix it and make it better die with them. And so actually it's more complicated, the grieving. I mean, it's not true of everybody. Maybe some people are relieved. But the people I've worked with, all the unresolved issues emerge even stronger and there's this kind of bashing themselves against a wall of wanting to get their dad back to sort it out. Um, So it's a kind of double loss, the dad they wanted, the dad they had and the the fact that their dad is gone. Is there a way that people can get any kind of resolution from that? Yes, I mean, I think, you know, I think you can find a way of coming to terms with very complex relationships by understanding yourself, understanding the person. I, I think you always hurt. I think this idea that through therapy it makes the pain go away or that you're sorted isn't true. I think therapy helps you understand and have an awareness and know how to support yourself. I don't think it makes things... You always have the wounds of the original scar. I wanted to ask about grief more generally and how it can affect us long term because I think... A lot of people think there's a window of grief and once that's done, you kind of move on and it's all okay. What happens when 
you don't kind of move on or you kind of extend through that window of grief? You know, the level of your grief is equal to the level of love that the person has died. So if it's someone that you were really fond of, you'd kind of be very sad for a while, but it doesn't have a big effect on your life. So you'd remember them and... But if it was someone who's very significant, your partner, your parent, your child, your your sibling, then that has a much bigger effect on your life. And people talk about grief is that it changes them and they have to adapt the new me, you know, now that my, my partner has died. And there are people who maybe they have um, a lot of vulnerability before, before um, the death happens. So that, and they've had a lot of difficulty before the death happens. And so their kind of capacity to manage that loss is much more fragile, they're much more vulnerable. And people like that may not have the capacity to manage the pain and heal and find a way of grieving and moving forward. They can get very s- stuck and have a breakdown or the equivalent of a breakdown. Not to say, like, is there anything you could do to fix that? But is there anything you could do that would help people who aren't able to move through it and are basically having, you know, long-term grief? The big thing is understanding. I think there's this kind of ignorance about grief. You know, I think in, in, in offices you're kind of given 10 days of compassionate leave and then you're meant to be back in the office in a couple of weeks and you're meant to be up and running within certainly three months and then within six months to a year people are saying to you come on come on love it's time to get over it you know I think you know you get get yourself um, going and that's ignorance it's not malice but that isn't how people work so they can function they can work but they're probably not going to be able to work as well as they did before and it takes them much longer than anybody wants or thinks to to adapt do you think that um, a kind of lack of understanding is because maybe people haven't gone through grief themselves? I think it's ignorance, yeah. yeah. I think once you experience loss yourself, then you have a much greater sensitivity. I mean, lots of people have said to me, God, I was so crass. I remember the things I said to people, and now it's my turn. You know, I'm a member of a club I don't want to be a member of, and people are saying those things to me. Well, I've lost one of my nans. Well, actually, my nan and granddad. Um, on my dad's side. The thing is, I don't know, maybe I'm, it sounds a bit odd to sort of say lucky in a way, but they both died at quite an old age and they'd had quite happy lives. And although obviously I wasn't happy at all when they passed away, I was, I was very sad. Maybe my family is quite good at grieving because we had sort of very, sort of fairly long funerals and everybody sort of got together and it felt like the family was sort of supporting each other in a way that maybe they don't necessarily do it other times but certainly they sort of came Come to get, together yeah everyone came together and you know there was that typical thing of sort of saying oh we should do this more often and of course you don't but um so that felt like a, with both of them it felt like a really good sort of celebration of their life the, the way that both funerals were organized with my nans i remember i, I wore pink high heel shoes because she <laughs> loved pink and um everybody sort of thought that was nice and i read a poem for her and the, the actual service was a bit of a fast because the man who was running it got a lot of things wrong. Um, but Didn't we also really know her. No, but we but we found that funny, and because she was a sort of a great joker, we thought that she would have found that quite funny. funny. Like I, I don't think it was to the point where he actually got her name wrong, but there were, it was almost as bad as that. Gosh. And um, yeah, afterwards the wake, that was there was sort of a lot of music and loads of family there, and everybody sort of sharing their stories. So 
that was very nice. And now when I sort of think about her, because we were very close, I, I don't feel like she's completely gone because she's still with me. Yeah, she's in you. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I dread to think what it would be like to sort of lose sort of a parent or sort of a sister or, God forbid, you know, like a niece or nephew. I think that would be horrendous. Sort of children, that would be absolutely awful. Um, so, yeah, I've only had that sort of experience of... A kind of Quite natural death, when they've had a full life, there are no regrets, it's not traumatic, mm. you know, and you loved each other and you were, you know, came together and remembered them and they're part of you. I mean, that sounds exactly as it should be, that it's mm. incredibly sad, but it's very natural, you're not fighting against it. It doesn't mm. feel like you've been robbed of, of someone. Mm. It, it feels that she will always influence you and she'll, you wear pink shoes and you'll think of her all the time, you know, and, mm. your, and your granddad. Whereas I know for my sister, one of her friends who was about the same age as her um, had a sudden death, which was just, you know, completely out of the blue. Um, I'm not quite sure what it was from. I think it might have been a, a heart thing. Um, and so she was that I know that really jolted my sister because um, this was a they were friends because they both had sort of kids the same age and you know, husbands. And so that was a bit of a well, that was a huge sort of shock to the system. Because that's a death out of time, isn't it? Mm. And you know, very sudden deaths and deaths of someone who, you know, is interrupted, has an interrupted life. One of the ways we think about it is that it's like normal grief, but with the volume turned up. Mm. So yours was kind of peaceful grief. Like you said, you were lucky, you feel blessed, that you feel blessed that you had them, that they loved you, you love them. Mm. And there's a kind of calm to it. Mm. What you describe with your sister is something that is very jagged and it comes and gets you it's like a crash mm. and that's what happens in your physical system so the the process of adjustment of of grieving is much more fragmented much more difficult because you're much you know it's there's trauma now we're talking about it though i have actually realized there's there's been other sort of ones which are much sort of less expected um one of my friends boyfriends killed himself so Ooh. there's the whole yeah so that was completely terrible i mean partly out of the blue but also partly not entirely unexpected because he had a history of, of, of issues um do you is there a sort of a different way that you you handle people that have relatives of people who died, died by suicide, suicide. Mm. yes i mean you know i think we always say that there isn't a hierarchy of grief that one grief isn't worse than another but the circumstances of the death certainly make your capacity to grieve much more complex if it's suicide um, because there's you're haunted by all the what-ifs and all the not understanding and the kind of guilt whether you kind of there's a clash between your head and your heart that you know in your head you probably couldn't do anything to make a difference but you feel like if you'd been a better sister better friend better girlfriend better wife husband that somehow they would have lived so there's this terrible terrible guilt that is that kind of really takes hold. And one of the things I talk to people who've um, had family members die by suicide is that, you know, like you said with your friend, we understand that you can have a sudden heart attack out of the blue within your central um, system. Um, in the same way with a suicide, you can have a heart attack of the brain, that it can completely, you know, that all your neural pathways kind of crash and the person ends up killing themselves. And actually that as a a concept it doesn't take away the pain but it, it sometimes that can be helpful mm.
My relationship with death is a bit strange because I haven't had anyone in my family or really close to me that's died, which is obviously really lucky for now. Um, well, you're young. Exactly. Yeah, one would hope that for I'm you. I'm still semi-young, so it's yeah. fine. Still lots of time for death to happen. Um, but with the people that I have known who have died, I've always felt kind of like, am I allowed to have this grief because I'm not as close to them? I'm not their family. Yeah. So... Um, one of my cousins died, but we were never really that close. I didn't go to the funeral. And then also um, someone who I just had a few conversations with died in the Manchester bombings. Oh, and I took that really hard, yeah. but I felt like I don't really have a place to be talking about that grief. It's not but, legitimate for yeah, me. Yeah, because he has so many amazing friends and family that are obviously going to be a lot more affected than, you know, than I am. Um, so, yeah, it's slightly... Not, I guess not like full-on grief, but just hesitant yeah. grief. I mean, if you'd come and talk to me, yeah. I would say that um, there isn't a competition. There's 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 enough space for everyone to feel sad. You know, I mean, if you were with the guys who's killed in Manchester Bong's mother or partner, you know, you'd let it be about them. But you'd also have give permission to yourself to feel incredibly sad because it was a devastating thing. I mean, we all felt sad even for people we didn't know. So when you do know, it, it's much more real. I mean, the task of mourning is accepting the reality of the death. When you know the person, it is much more real than if you just see those awful pictures um, in the newspaper. And then the other fun part of death to me is that I have obsessive thoughts about death. So I often think that my friends are dead if I haven't heard from them in a while or I think I'm going to get murdered so I don't know if maybe kind of real life grief would affect that but that's my experience of death at the moment is just all hypothetical obsessive thoughts Is that because of these things that have happened that you're no, much more aware of death? that's been since I think when I was a teenager I started having panic attacks about that kind of thing and nightmares so it's just a fun obsessive trait I mean I certainly have that but then I deal with 20 people a week who die so my kind of lens on life is that when you have a headache you die of a brain tumour I think maybe a lot of people have much greater fear about death and that it's going to happen than is generally known I think probably lots of people would say to you well I have that too um, but they don't acknowledge it and I think some of it is because it's all so subliminal that you wouldn't be able to, you wouldn't be saying to people, I'm worried about it. And so it has a, it takes a much stronger hold on you because it's a fear that you keep suppressing. And then it kind of pops up when, when something comes near it that triggers it. Whereas if it was something that you were talking about regularly, it probably wouldn't be so potent. And I think in general, we hardly ever talk about death it's seen as this one big scary topic that we can't discuss mm -hmm. i think that definitely does make me more like yes yeah, really no, i mean like that. your body is like yeah, yeah move away from it it's just a very uncomfortable subject for a lot of people i think i hope this podcast will help people find a language to find a way of talking about it to their close friends to their family i mean that would be one small step in raising awareness about the grief works
So tell me about Pure Land. So Pure Land um, is part of the Pure Land Foundation and it's a, a series of events um, which supports the social, spiritual and, uh, and emotional well-being but through the arts mm-hmm. um, and through music. And I'm doing it to, in a way, sh- showcase my book, Brief Works. I'm being um, interviewed by Tom Bradby, the newsreader, and I'm also being interviewed with uh, a woman whose husband and daughter were killed in a terrible um, boat accident, Victoria Milligan. Mm-hmm. So we're, again, doing what Bruno Wang, who, who funds the Pure Land um, series, he wants to tell people's stories so that we have a much greater understanding of how to support ourselves spiritually and emotionally when difficult things happen. Mm. If you've been affected by any of the issues we discussed today, please contact the Samaritans on 116-123 or go to the website at samaritans.org. If you've enjoyed our show, please give us a rating on iTunes and maybe listen to some previous episodes we've got up there as well. And now this is a new exciting thing. Yeah, exciting. We've also got a Facebook page now. Um, so come and have a chat with us on there. That'd be really lovely. Yeah, and that's for any kind of discussions about mental health. It's a group, so you can have chats amongst yourself, but we'll also be hanging out there talking about, you know, all things mental health. So thanks very much to our producer, Sam Bonham, and also to Lucy Baker for the jingles. We'll see you again next week. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.